Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 5 is where we'll be here in just a moment. Toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, as the religious leaders were becoming increasingly hostile, they sought to trap him in his words by asking, they were asking him difficult, sometimes controversial Bible questions. And he silenced them with his profound answer and insight. He silenced his critics and enemies. And then he turned the tables and asked them a question. And this is what he asked them. I'll put it on the screen there. This is found in Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Here's the question saying, what do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, we know this, this is an easy one, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, that is David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 and verse 1, which David, the king of Israel, wrote. And what Jesus is insightfully alluding to, but doesn't explain fully here, is the unique nature of this psalm, in which David is recording a conversation between Yahweh and David's Lord, the Christ, the Messiah. David's recording a conversation between Yahweh and this other figure that he just calls his Lord, that Jesus says, that's the Christ. And he's asking, well, how could he be David's son if he's also David's Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, and that's a conversation there between Yahweh and the Messiah. It's insightful. That psalm, Psalm 110, becomes a bedrock of Christology, that is, our understanding of Christ in the New Testament. In fact, do you know that that is the most quoted or alluded to passage, Old Testament passage, by the New Testament authors? More than any other Old Testament passage, this passage is quoted or alluded to, Psalm 110. And I start there because it is at the heart of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Our author understands here what Jesus is doing, how Jesus is reading the Old Testament, and he is going to help us understand what Jesus is implying here. In fact, you know that our author, the author of Hebrews, He quotes or alludes to Psalm 110 at least a dozen times in his letter. That's a lot. It's right at 
the center. Now, we, we saw it, that is Psalm 110, in the opening chapters of the, the book of Hebrews, in which he emphasized the exaltation of the Son to God's right hand. And that's what Jesus is quoting here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And we saw in Hebrews 1 how our author used that of the Son, the Father saying to the Son, sit at my right hand. His exaltation to the Father's right hand, far above every name that is named. And our author in Hebrews explained to us how that eternal Son comes to be exalted at the Father's right hand, namely through His incarnation and His suffering. That's how He comes to sit at the Father's right hand in this unique sense as the Son. So this psalm, Psalm 110, speaks firstly of the exaltation of the Son, the exaltation of Christ, but there's one more aspect to Psalm 110 that is of singular importance to our understanding of Christ, namely His priesthood. His priesthood. The high priesthood of Jesus is at the heart of this letter of Hebrews. And as I have said a few times, it's completely unique to the book of Hebrews in all the New Testament. It's only the book of Hebrews that designates and explains Jesus as high priest. How impoverished we would be without this this letter of Hebrews, and what a joy it is to consider it. Now, we, we have begun this section, see it there on the screen, where he develops the high priesthood of Jesus, the all-sufficient high priest. It starts in chapter 4, verse 14, and it's going to go all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. So it's right at the center of his letter where he's going to develop in some detail the high priesthood, that Christ is the all-sufficient perfect high priest, and that he is fully adequate for our perseverance until we enter God's rest, that final rest. He's not only our great high priest, but he's a sympathetic high priest who is present now to help us. So he's going to, he's going to explain this in this chapter. And my prayer, as I mentioned last Sunday, my prayer as we are entering this in spending this time that this truth, Christ as our high priest, would become more and more precious to us as we study Hebrews. We would value this, and it would be really precious to us. And part of seeing it as precious starts with perceiving our need for a high priest. I mentioned last Sunday. We have to start our need for a, a priest because we don't immediately feel that in our culture. That no sinful human being, none of us, could ever approach God and live without being consumed by His holy judgment. We need a representative to go before us and on our behalf. And that's exactly what we have in Christ. Now, this, this concept of priesthood, 
didn't start with the book of Hebrews. He didn't invent this whole category or concept. We know that God himself instituted priesthood and the high priest in the Old Testament. And he did it when he came to dwell with his people in the midst of his people in the form of the tabernacle. It's at that point that he instituted the priesthood and he appointed the high priest and he prescribed offerings and sacrifices and the exact procedures for the priest to make atonement for the sin of the people. There's no other way of approach to God who is holy in their midst. And it was through this elaborate priesthood and sacrifices and offerings that he would make atonement for the people. And as you read the Old Testament, I know sometimes it can feel hard to read that portion of Exodus and then Leviticus and into Numbers, but I encourage you to be reading. I hope you're reading through the Bible this year. As you read it, just think what elaborate links God initiates to dwell with his people. What elaborate links he goes to to provide reconciliation to him. Which, if we just connect those details to the big story of the Bible, this is the big story. It's really the return to Eden, cast out because of sin. What's the return? God is going to these elaborate links to provide the way of reconciliation, the way of return to his presence with joy and forgiveness. So that's what you have under the Old Testament, this elaborate priesthood. But as we are reading the book of Hebrews, we are learning that all of that, all of that complexity and detail was only prefiguring Christ, the final perfect high priest and sacrifice. All of it, all of it is but a shadow, a type pointing to this great reality that is here in Christ. And so as our author begins to explain the priesthood of Christ, the high priesthood of Christ, he starts with relating Christ priesthood back to that Old Testament high priesthood. So he starts that in chapter 5. I invite you to look there. Let me read this section again where he compares the Old Testament high priesthood with Christ high priesthood. He's going to compare and contrast. Let me read Hebrews 5 verses 1 through 10 for us again. And you can pick out the comparison and as I read it, see if you can find the reference to Psalm 110, which is right at the heart of this. Verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Stop there. We saw the, the references to Psalm 110. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He says it twice in this text. So that's that great psalm that I started with. The new high priest and the old. It's the heading we began last Sunday because in these 10 verses, in this paragraph, he is comparing and contrasting the Old Testament high priesthood and Christ high priesthood. And the outline is very simple. First, he starts with the Old Testament priesthood and gives just general descriptions and qualifications of the Old Testament high priest. That's verses 1 through 4. The Old Testament high priesthood. He's describing and giving the qualifications. And we looked at those last week. We saw four things about the Old Testament high priest and how they are similar and yet different than Jesus. Jesus is going to surpass those. So number two, the second part of the outline that we will begin looking at here this morning, Christ high priesthood. It's similar yet much superior. The first, the Old Testament high priesthood, prefigures the second, Christ high priesthood. And as we'll see, the author will go on to explain, because Christ's priesthood is much superior, and that first is but a type of it, as Christ comes as high priest, it renders obsolete the first. That's what he's going to go on to argue. It's similar, yet superior. Now, interestingly, he doesn't say, the author doesn't say directly that Christ's priesthood is better. He likes that word better. We've seen that through the book. We'll see it many times. The superiority, it's better. He doesn't say it in so many words, but instead he uses this intentional literary device to highlight his superiority. These verses are written in this chiastic structure, it's called. Whether you remember that title doesn't really matter. A chiastic structure is when you have words or ideas that are listed and then they are repeated and adapted in reverse order. So if you have A, B, C, then you go C, B, A. Right? So that's a chiastic structure, very intentional. It's a literary device, usually to highlight the second part of that. He's going to expand it, but also to highlight the center. And indeed, that's what's happening here. So he's very intentionally doing this comparison and contrast with the Old Testament high priest and Jesus' high priesthood. And you get a sense of it. You can get to the center of it right there in verses 4, 5, and 6, right where we're at in our study. You can just hear him. If you look back there, it says, verse 4, speaking of the Old Testament high priest, no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was, so also Christ. And now he's reversing. Now he's going to give the high priesthood of Christ, but he's going to start there where he ended with the Old Testament high priest about his appointment, and he's going to say Christ didn't 
glorify himself, didn't appoint himself, but God did, and he's going to build it out. So it's a very intentional. You get a feel for it as you, as you read it. And right at the center of this structure is Psalm 110. It is the key psalm. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he will take some time in his letter to explain the implications of that psalm. We want to begin to see now the priesthood of Christ, our superior high priest. He's our high priest. He's our superior high priest. He's similar to the Old Testament high priest, but he's greater. He's much superior. And he begins to unfold that now through this structure. So see, I just, we're going to see part of it this morning. It's, it's, it's complex, honestly. It's difficult. It's unfamiliar water here in these descriptions. And so we're going to slow it here and make sure we understand what he's saying as he describes the priesthood of Christ. So number one, his, that is Christ now, divine designation or appointment. So we ended last week with the Old Testament high priest designation or appointment by God. He didn't just assume it. God appointed him. So now he's making the turn and he's going to Christ and he starts where he ended with Christ's divine designation. So you see it again there in verse 5, right? As he makes the turn, he's making the comparison. So also Christ There's the term, so also Christ. Now he's going to begin building out this comparison and the superiority of Christ. He's transitioning to Christ high priesthood. And just like he said of the Old Testament high priest, no Old Testament high priest took the honor to himself. He didn't volunteer to be a high priest. He didn't appoint himself as high priest. When people tried to do that, it went really badly in the Old Testament. So also Christ, he says. Notice how he says it. He did not glorify himself so as to become high priest. Christ didn't. The incarnate Son came in complete submission to the Father's will, and He did not seek His own glory in that sense. I do not glorify myself. My Father glorifies me, He says in John 8. He comes to do the Father's will. So He doesn't assume this on His own initiative, we would say. He doesn't assume, he doesn't glorify himself in the sense of taking on this priesthood. He didn't claim it of his own will. He receives it from his father. That's his point. He's going to say in verse 10, if you look at chapter 5, verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest. It's a divine designation. So how does he show this? Well, he quotes two psalms. So here's the point of those two psalms. Let me give you this first note. The one whom God proclaims as son, he also proclaims as priest forever. The one whom God proclaims as son, you are my son, he also proclaims as priest forever. He's going to combine, he's going to link these two psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Now the author, as I said last week, He has to give divine scriptural authorization for Christ's priesthood because Christ is not from the tribe of Levi. He is not a descendant of Aaron that he just mentioned in verse 4. 
The whole Testament priesthood is built on Aaron and Aaron's family, Aaron's son. Christ is not from the line of Aaron. So how do you justify his priesthood? That's what he's beginning to show. He is designated by God himself directly as high priest, as a priest forever. Where's that? Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever. But notice, he doesn't just quote Psalm 110. That's what I would expect, maybe. God designates him, as he says, and then quotes Psalm 110. But before he does it, he quotes Psalm 2. Do you see it? He who said, you are my son, today I begotten you, also says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He merges Christ's high priesthood with his sonship. And right there, this is the center of his structure, and one author calls this, this is the pivot of the entire letter, where we take the sonship of Christ now, and we're linking it, merging it to his high priesthood. That's why he's starting there. The son's priesthood is founded on his sonship. This is what makes him distinct from every high priest in the Old Testament. Who is it that he's declaring to be high priest? Well, it is none other than the one he declares his son. That's not true of any Old Testament high priest in this sense. His high priesthood is effective because he is the son. He's going to go on to explain that. So sonship and priesthood are connected together, and he does that by quoting these two psalms again. Now, he's already quoted Psalm 2, such an important psalm, but do you see what the author is saying? God is speaking to the same person in these psalms. He's speaking to the same, the same God that keeps showing up in the psalms. That's not the psalmist, and it's not David. That's what Jesus started with. Now, David heard the conversation between Yahweh and my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. And that's the person that the Lord is speaking to in Psalm 110. It's the same person he's speaking to in Psalm 2 when he says, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. It's about him. It's about Christ. The Psalms are, as he shows. So he already quoted Psalm 2 back in chapter 1, speaking of the exaltation of Christ. You are my son, today I begotten you. And he connected that, Psalm 2, with Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand. Now he's going to connect it to Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that phrase there, Psalm 110, I said this glorious, unique psalm where God, the Father's conversation with the Son, the Messiah, is so full of implications. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, you are to be forgiven if you forgot all about Melchizedek. Or if you I don't even know who, who that is, right? Why is that important? What's it have to do with Jesus, right? It is obscure. It's only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament. So many implications, but I don't need to give those now, explain, because he's going to do it. He's going to take an entire chapter to develop that part of Psalm 110. He's going to take several chapters to draw out the implications. So just hang on to that. It's coming. But here, what you see in this context, where he quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 together, 
we, we ask, when did God designate the Son as high priest? Well, remember the context of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. Yes, Christ, the, the Son, has always been the Son, the eternal Son. But in this unique sense, at His exaltation, He says, You are my Son, sit at my right hand. Right? Well, it's the same with the priesthood. So, just my second note here. God proclaimed Him, the Son, High Priest, at His exaltation when He entered into the full exercise of this office. That's when this comes to fruition, this declaration, you are my son, and you are a priest forever. It's when God said, sit at my right hand. Remember, that's how Psalm 110 verse 1 starts. Sit at my right hand. That's the exaltation of the son. At that same time, he says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He comes into the fullness of that office. But again, Connect Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Why is he making this connection? Well, he's showing that the Son is the priest, but the Son, remember who the Son is, he's the King. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. Sit my right hand, or you are, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. I have seated my King on Zion. And now this same King, who is the Son, is called priest. See it? He's a king priest. That's unusual. There's not many of those in the Old Testament. I would argue there's two of those. Adam. Adam, in some sense, is the first king priest. He is called to rule. He's called to take care of the priestly language. We saw that when we were looking at Genesis He's a type, but then there's only one other, the entire Bible, and it's in his name, Melchizedek, the king priest. So he's connecting, and he's going to explain it when we get to chapter 7. That's why he's putting these psalms together. So he, he is designated at his exaltation, but careful here. That high priesthood of Jesus doesn't begin at his exaltation. That's when he comes into the fullness of his office. Just like his sonship doesn't begin at his exaltation. So his high priesthood begins on earth. In verse 7, he's going to turn right around there in chapter 5, verse 7, and say, in the days of his flesh. This is when his priestly ministry, his high priesthood begins, but it reaches its fulfillment upon his exaltation. There's a completedness to his priesthood, and there's an ongoing aspect to that priesthood. And for the writer of Hebrews, what sometimes confuses us, or we can get kind of lost, is he sees the sufferings, the earthly sufferings of Jesus, the cross, and the exaltation as one indivisible whole. It's all together. And so we can get lost if we don't see that. So that's first, his designation, and that's the use of Psalm 100. That's where he introduces here, Psalm 110, verse 4, that he's going to explain now. God designated him high priest forever, not according to Aaron, but according to Melchizedek, whatever that means. He's a king priest. Now, he's going to continue the comparison and showing the superiority of Christ, verses 7 through 10. 
But as you read verses 7 through 10, I think these are difficult verses. That is, we are, we're not accustomed to this kind of language about Jesus. It is rare to this description of Jesus. And as we read it, it can be confusing. We're not sure exactly maybe what he's saying or why is he even saying it like this right here. It is hard. It helps to keep the structure in mind, this chiastic structure I said, this, this comparison with Old Testament priest in view. And he's doing it now in reverse order. So if you remember back to last week, if you're here, we looked at those descriptions of the high priest. And we saw the high priest, his, his ability, he's able to deal gently, but we saw his weakness, his sinful weakness, and then we saw his sacrifice. He's obligated to make sacrifice. Well, he's going to do the same thing with Jesus, but now in reverse order. After he's already said he's designated by God, now he's going to talk about Christ's offering, and then his obedience, which is different than the sinfulness of the priest, and then his ability, his effectiveness, which is way beyond that of the Old Testament high priest. So that's, that's what he's doing here, and he's doing it with language, as I said, that we are not as familiar with, and we may be even a tad uncomfortable with <laughs> some of the things he says. Let me, let me give you just a summary of verses 7 through 10, what I think the main point is. He describes the Son who has been set apart for a fully effective priesthood through complete obedience. I think that's the big, big idea here. This is a, verses 7 and 10 is a description of the Son who has set apart for a fully effective priesthood, unlike the Old Testament priest, and that comes through complete obedience. And it's this obedience part that we're not as familiar with and maybe not as comfortable with. So I think that's what he's describing. I don't want us to lose sight. He is still comparing priesthood, high priesthood of Jesus with Old Testament priesthood and showing the superiority. So let me, let me move here to number two, the second description of our high priest, his offering. His offering. Look at verse 7. And we're just going to stay right here in verse 7. And we'll just finish here because this is not a simple verse. In the days of his flesh. It's that. Well, we know that's the time, his time on earth, his earthly ministry. What's it mean in his flesh? His humanness, his human weakness. When, when subjected to the frailty and limitations of humanity, it's the days of his flesh. And he's thinking of the period of Christ's earthly ministry. That whole time. In the days of his flesh, and here's the key word, he offered. You see it? He offered. That word there, he offered or he offered up, is always sacrificial language in the book of Hebrews. And that's the word, again, you might not see it, that's the word that connects you back to his comparison with Old Testament priest. Verse 3, if you're following the structure, here's this parallel verse back there. Be speaking of 
The high priest in the Old Testament, verse 3 says, because of it, he is obligated to offer. Offer. Now, mine includes the word sacrifice, but just offer for sins for the people. Same word he used back in verse 1. The main role of the priest, to offer. It's the sacrificial language. And that's what he's describing here. The offering of Jesus. But he's using language that we're not familiar with. We're expecting him to say, and he offered himself on the cross. But he doesn't say it like that. See it, verse 7? He offered prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears to him who was able to save him from death. What does that mean? What is he talking about? Why does he say it like that? <laughs> so let me, let me give you a one-line just description or a explanation of what I think he's describing there. For it's a depiction of the incarnate Son's complete and utter dependence upon God that climaxes in the garden and on the cross. Say it again. It's a depiction of the incarnate sons during the days of his flesh, of his complete and utter dependence upon God that climaxes in the garden. We get a little glimpse and then on the cross. It's just different language than we're used to. And the writer of Hebrews does this frequently. Do you see this combination there? Look at verse 7 again. He offered here prayers, supplications with loud crying and tears. It's communicating the intensity of his need and dependence on God. And this is where we're somewhat slightly maybe uncomfortable. Jesus had need in his days of his flesh, yes, to strengthen him, to keep trusting in his Father, his utter dependence on God. That's what he said. I came to do the will of my Father completely. I always do what is pleasing to him. He's clinging to God in submission. That's the description of verse 7. And that intensity of language, prayers, supplications, loud crying and tears, speaks of agony, struggle, conflict. He's beseeching his father. He's clinging to him. You can feel the intensity of it. Loud crying and tears. Again, those, those aren't exact words from any of the gospel accounts. He's summarizing the days of his flesh. His earthly ministry was characterized by this complete and utter dependence on God in submission. Notice how he says it there. He, he made he offered prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That is to his father. Now, that's not necessarily the content of his prayer. Many read it that way. It's not really what it says. 
it really doesn't give us all the content of what he's petitioning and, and making supplications with loud crying. He's, he's, he's just desperate to depend on his father to be strengthened, to go through with what he's called to do. But when it says he's, he's praying to the one who's able to save him from death, it's certainly he's praying in anticipation of the cross. He's fully aware of what is coming. And so I said, it, it, it's characteristic of his earthly ministry, but it climaxes in the garden and on the cross. Probably most of us, when we read verse 7, our minds are drawn to the garden of Gethsemane, right? Even though, interesting, he, he doesn't make any verbal connections back to the garden that way. But nonetheless, it's right. I don't think he's merely describing the Garden of Gethsemane, but the Garden of Gethsemane is an example, is one little window into the kind of praying that Jesus is doing in dependence on his Father. And we know that account. And that account says that he was in great agony, in anguish, in this conflict of mind, as we know his prayer if possible, take this cup from it. He knew what the cup was that he was about to drink. And he shrunk back with horror at it. And yet submitted to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. And then we're told an angel came and strengthened him. God heard him. God heard him, not, not keeping him from death. That's not the prayer. Strengthening him through what he's about to undergo. That's the idea. We see a glimpse in the garden, and it climaxes on the cross in that horrific cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? can't begin to know what that experience is for the son to experience the alienation from the father and experience the fullness of that judgment. It was horrific for him. And so through his life, he is pleading and praying, not to escape that, but that I will obey you. I will submit to your will. Strengthen me through all of it. You say, why does he call it an offering? What's it have to do with his offering? It's inseparable from his death. So I'll put it this way. The son offered himself in complete submission to God unto death as his priestly consecration. That's how the writer of Hebrews is seeing it. That this offering that is marked by prayers and supplication, loud crying and tears, is the offering of himself in complete submission unto death. And it is his priestly offering his consecration as priest. Again, in contrast, back to verse 3, it's the parallel text he's contrasting with, where because of the sinfulness of the high priest, he had to make offerings for himself. 
for his sin. That was part of his consecration. Before they ever stepped or were used as a high priest, they had to be consecrated. And part of that was offering sins for themselves. And they had to continue to do that. Not, not the son. There's no offering of sin for himself. It's the offering of himself. In complete submission, obedience, all the way to death unto his father. That is his priestly consecration. Again, this is the writer of Hebrews, when he contemplates the sufferings of Christ, the death of Christ, he's, he sees it through several lenses. And it's really rich and fascinating. Yes, there's the propitiation or the, the atonement value of the sacrifice of Christ himself. We'll get to that. There's the benefits of that sacrifice. But before all of that is the consecration of himself as priest. And that's what he's doing in verse 7. And how much superior than the Old Testament high priest. If you look ahead at chapter 10, excuse me, I'm going to put 5, chapter 10 of Hebrews and chapter and verse 5. I put chapter 5 there, I'm sorry. Chapter 10. Verse 5, the writer, he's going to come back to this as he closes this big section on priesthood. And, and here's how he says it. And he's quoting, again, the Psalms. It's really fascinating. And, and you can see it this way. Just as we hear a conversation between father and son, or the father saying, sit at my right hand and you are a priest forever. Well, here's the son's response. You want to hear his response? Here's a conversation. Here's his response, again, from the Psalms. Isn't that fascinating? Verse 5, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the role of the book. It is written for me to do your will, O God. That, that's the offering of complete submission and obedience to the will of God, which is his sacrifice. And it is that submission to that will, doing that will, that is the final and complete sacrifice that takes away all previous sacrifices. But notice what it says at the end of verse 7. I said this, this verse is really poignant, rich. So we see his offering of himself completely. This is his self-offering. And it says at the end of verse 7, and he was heard because of his piety. So I'll say it this way. Because of his complete obedience unto death, God heard and accepted the son's offering. He was heard because of his piety. Yes, God answered that ongoing cry and petition with loud cry and this agony that he expresses, this tears. He answered by strengthening him to persevere, to obey, to submit through the cross. God heard him. He answered him. Again, it's not sparing him from death, just the opposite. It's keeping him through it. And he heard him and accepted him finally when he raised him from the dead. 
and seated him and said, sit at my right hand forever as king and high priest. He was heard. Isn't that fascinating? Because of his, mine says piety, maybe yours says reverence or godly fear. It's the word for fear. It was heard because of fear, his piety, his godly fear. Again, it's back to that submission, his, his obedience resulting from his utter dependence upon God because it was complete and it was perfect. And so that's why he's going to jump right to verse 8. We'll have to wait for next week to get it. Although he's a son, he learned obedience. What does that mean? We, we'll save that. We have to explain that. But the father accepted, heard, accepted, received the offering and raised him from the dead. He is the one who is able to save out of death, ultimately. Not despair from death, but out of death. Resurrection. And seated him as priest forever. What an amazing statement. Now, we're just stopping there. Because that's, that's enough. That's rich. And i got to figure out verses 8 and 9 for next week. So... This is, this is not easy sledding, but oh, how rich. Let me, let me, let me finish, though. I'm going to stop here with just two, two words of application. Okay? The main application is coming next week. He's the source of eternal salvation because of this. But, but, but let me just leave you with these two. First, see, behold, the intensity and difficulty of Jesus' complete submission to the Father's will and worship him. Verse 7, probably, perhaps unlike any verse in the whole Bible, shows us the intensity, the difficulty of Jesus' complete submission to his Father's will, which was to be this priest. Do you see it? It's not automatic. Oh, how we can view Jesus. Well, of course, he's, he's the Son of God. This is just like autopilot obedience. Of course, it's easy for him. He was the son of God. Prayers, supplication, loud crying and tears. He knew. He knew what the Father's will was. He knew the unimaginable horror that he faced. He had that strong, vehement conflict in his mind to be forsaken by his father. Marvel, Christian, how difficult our salvation is. How exceedingly difficult for the son. This is love. This is love. That's why the Bible just so magnifies this, this act of Christ as the highest demonstration of God's love for us. That he would do this. That he didn't come down from that cross when they mocked him, though he had every power to do so. That he didn't quit in the garden 
but persisted. This is love. Do you marvel at this? Do you understand the cost of our salvation, the difficulty, the difficulty of Christ, and you worship him? And then second, imitate his example of trust and obedience in the face of suffering and temptation. We have a sympathetic high priest. Now, this, this just connects to the, to the author's big point in the letter, that we're to hold fast, we're to persevere in Christ in the face of suffering or feeling like quitting or because of trial or because of allurements this way. So follow his example. The one who fully, perfectly trusted and obeyed the will of his Father, that will that is unimaginable, impossible, and continue to trust and obey. And he, he left us an example to follow. He is an example. He's more. He's our Savior. But he is an example to follow. So if you're facing, if you're facing just extremely difficult situation, circumstances, or, or even an impossible obedience, no way can I obey God in this situation. Look to Christ who endured for you. We're not left to our own resources just to grit it out. This is the high priest we have who's at the Father's right hand. He says, come, I'll come to your aid. I'll come to your aid. I know what it is to suffer. I know what it is to be tempted to not trust the Father. I know it in a way deeper and more horrible than any of us. He'll come to sustain you. Do you know him? Finish with the words of Hebrews 12. Again, this, he's getting to this as he wraps this all up, but just hear it in advance where he says, we have so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us, let us lay aside every encumbrance. Let us run this race with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He did. Fix your eyes on him. And don't grow weary. We have a sympathetic high priest. Let me pray for us and we'll pick it up next Sunday. Oh, Father, magnify the Son to us. Oh, the depth of your love, the love of Christ to endure, to perfectly submit and obey, and to give himself an offering on our behalf to rescue us. May Christ be very precious to us today. I ask this in his name. Amen.